You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. Hello, and welcome to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast series. Today, we're going to have a look at some of the main changes coming down the tracks in the employment law world for 2024. This follows on from a series of client updates that we've released in recent weeks since coming back after Christmas and discussions we've been having with clients about what they see coming down the tracks as well for them this year. I want to focus not just on the changes themselves, but also maybe to take a little bit of time to talk about the trends that we're seeing in this space and our clients' experience of what they're also seeing as a result of these changes. As you'll see, there is an awful lot going on at the moment, so get yourself ready. Number one, there are changes in the whistleblowing space. Those of you familiar with the Protected Disclosures Amendment Act from 2022 will remember it introduced for the first time a statutory obligation to have a whistleblowing procedure in place for any employer with 250 employees or more. That threshold is now coming down as of the end of December, and any employer with 50 employees or more must now also have a similar procedure in place. To be more precise, it requires employers to establish, maintain, and operate an internal reporting channel and procedure for making and managing protected disclosures. As an observation on the trends in this area, one trend we definitely saw last year when the new legislation came in was that suddenly a lot more employees were presenting themselves as whistleblowers, So employees raising a grievance or making a bullying complaint against a colleague, suddenly we're all now identifying this as a protected disclosure. There's no doubt that this complicates addressing an internal procedure. It also adds a huge amount of time to it for the employer. And I don't think that trend is going to change. It's just going to continue, if anything. Number two, the minimum wage has gone up. Again, you'll have seen a lot of commentary on this in the media in that the statutory national minimum wage has gone from 11.30 up to 12.70. Now, for most of our clients in the tech, pharma, financial services sectors, this has had very little impact because the wage rates in those sectors are well above the minimum wage anyway. It has had much more of an impact, I think, in retail and leisure and those type of sectors where you will have a much larger number of employees who are working on the minimum wage and pretty close to it. So there's no direct impact for the majority of our clients here. However, I would say we've seen or sensed an indirect impact in that for those clients in these particular sectors that might have a large transport or logistics or manufacturing element where employees are not necessarily paid at the minimum wage level, but perhaps slightly above it, those employees are now becoming conscious of the the reducing gap between the minimum wage and their level of pay. So we're seeing some degree of pay claims coming in in those type of roles. Perhaps more worrying, we're also seeing the trade unions jump onto this and use it as a, an opportunity to garner support from the employees and attract more membership into their, their own ranks. And in some cases, we've seen trade unions threaten pay claim referrals to the Labour Court. Now, at this stage in mid-February, it's still too early to say how far that will go but it's definitely something employers just need to be live to. Related to this, we also have the EU Directive on the Adequate Minimum Wage coming in this year, in November 2024. I don't think it's going to have a huge impact on the actual numbers because the Irish national minimum wage has jumped up so much 
in that recent change. But there is a provision in the directive that when you look at it at first, it seems to provide for some sort of mandatory collective bargaining with unions on what those wage rates should be. Again, most of you will be aware, successive Irish governments have always resisted the idea of mandatory trade union recognition. So it'll be interesting to see how exactly the government deal with this particular provision. We don't have draft legislation yet. As I say, the directive doesn't take effect here until November later this year, but it is one we'll have to keep an eye on. Number three, sick pay is also increasing. So again, last year we saw the introduction of a statutory sick pay scheme for employers. And that started with employees being entitled to a minimum of three days paid sick leave. That increases from three days to five days in 2024 and will ultimately work its way up to 10 days by 2026. Sick pay is calculated at 70% of the employee's wage, subject to a cap of €110 per week. And again, for most of our employer clients, I would say it's not that relevant because the vast majority already have quite established and generous sick pay schemes in place. However, a bit like the minimum wage, for those employers that have a more modest sick pay scheme in place, we have seen some employees raise the question and try and push employers on whether their level of benefits will be increased on a commensurate basis to build in the extra three, now five days. There's nothing in the legislation that requires employers to actually do this, but from an employee relations perspective, or maybe even a trade union management perspective, it is something that employers perhaps should be ready to deal with if it comes up for them. Number four, the gender pay gap reporting obligations are being increased. We've just been through the second round of gender pay gap reporting, and as a trend or as an observation, probably the most surprising part of this was the lack of interest from the media and indeed the lack of interest from employees generally on the gender pay gap data coming out of employers. When we went through this for the first time in December 2022, there was a huge amount of interest in it. There was a lot of comparative analysis in the media and a lot of employees were coming to their employers and HR directors asking them for the data and asking what it meant. So it's been a bit of a surprise how little interest there was from the media in this. For 2024, the obligation at the moment is that any employer with more than 250 employees has to provide the gender pay gap data. And as a rough estimate, we understand there are about 500 employers in the Irish labour force at that level. From May 2024 onwards, that threshold will drop down to 150 employees. So this will significantly increase the number of employers having to provide that data. For anybody who's been through this already, I know you'll agree with me that there's a huge amount of preparation work involved in getting this data ready. So if you are one of those employers that will be caught by this for the first time this year, what I would strongly encourage you to do is start thinking and planning for this now. There's a lot of questions to be dealt with. And when you look at the regulations, there aren't that many black and white answers to a lot of these questions. So you will have to consider your position, consider what way you're going to go about it on a lot of these issues. And that just takes time. On a related note, again, we have the Pay Transparency Directive coming down the tracks, not this year, but in June 2026. And that will fundamentally overhaul the way we think about gender pay gap data, because that will give employees much more comprehensive and specific rights to request pay equity information in regard to colleagues in their space and, and their role against other roles. 
In addition, these are rights that the employees will be able to exercise all year long. So whereas at the moment, the gender pay gap project is something that takes up a lot of time in November and December. Once the directive is in place, this is going to be a 12 month long exercise. And I understand from clients with operations in Germany and France where they have more advanced legislation around the employee's right to request this type of information, that it is a huge administrative burden on payroll and finance and HR in dealing with these type of requests. So again, one we'll just need to keep our eye on. Number five, in regard to retirement ages, we have changes on the national pension age. So at the moment, employees can draw down their state pension at 66. But as of January this year, employees can opt to push that out to age 70 in exchange for which to receive a higher pension from that point onwards. Now, there's no associated obligation on employers to allow employees who opt for this to remain in work until they're 70. However, I think it's only inevitable that if more employees do take this option, that they will, as a consequence, look to stay on in their role. As a trend, again, what we saw last year was a, a real and obvious increase in the number of employees that were looking to push out the retirement date and stay on be, beyond the normal retirement age in their organization. We've also seen continued increase in the number of employees challenging their employer, imposing a mandatory retirement age before the WRC. My own view on the whole concept of mandatory retirement age is that it's probably only a matter of time before the concept is declared unlawful anyway. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't still maintain one if you have one. But if you do, my view is it's becoming increasingly more difficult for employers to defend these type of cases. And if you want to be in a position to successfully defend it, then you must have a very clear, robust retirement age policy in your organization that sets out what the, the normal retirement age is for the organization and explains and objectively justifies why you have this retirement age and why it's an appropriate measure to pursue this particular aim. For most employers, it's around succession planning and intergenerational fairness. And that's where a lot of the case law seems to focus at the moment. Number six is the Work-Life Balance and Miscellaneous Provisions Act. Or to cut to the chase, it's the provisions around the right to request remote and flexible working. Now, there are actually two different changes within this legislation, one in regard to leave and the other in regard to remote and flexible working. On the leave front, this legislation introduced late last year this new concept of carer's leave, where parents or carers of individuals can take up to five days unpaid leave for medical purposes in any 12-month period. It was actually introduced in July 2023, so I'm cheating slightly here in talking about it as a change for this year, but it probably will have a greater impact on the ground this year. Likewise, it introduced this new concept of domestic violence leave, which again provided for up to five days of unpaid leave for employees in any 12-month period. And that was introduced from November 2023. The real meat in this legislation, though, is around the right to request remote and flexible working. And I think it's fair to say the Irish government was quite progressive when it launched this concept and proposal back in 2021 during the height of COVID. And then the Work-Life Balance Directive introduced something pretty similar, which was due to be introduced at some point last year. However, for reasons that are becoming all the more difficult to understand, the department still hasn't enacted the particular provisions of the legislation that deal with remote and flexible working. 
And at this point, the Irish state has actually been referred to the Court of Justice of the European Union by the EU Commission for failure to implement this on time, along with Spain and Belgium, I think. The department's position at the moment is they can't enact these provisions until the WRC introduce a code of practice around remote working. That code of practice was due to be published in January 2024, but at this point in mid-February, there's still no sign of it, so it's hard to say when exactly it will come down to us. I think it's fair, though, to expect it will be at some point this year. We just don't know when. My own professional view on this, again, is that it is probably academic. Most employers had to very quickly work out what their remote working policy was back in spring 2022, when COVID was eventually coming to an end and we were able to come back to the workplace. If anything, the trend is now going the other way. What we're seeing is an increasing number of employers tightening the flexibility around remote working and taking measures to encourage employees back into the workplace. And in more recent weeks, we also saw some high profile employers crossing the Rubicon and actually mandating that employees come back into the workplace on Fridays. The next change then is in regard to parents' leave, which is increasing again. So the budget last autumn increased parents' leave from seven weeks to nine weeks, and that's going to take effect as of next August. We don't have the exact detail around the start date for this as yet, but assuming it operates on the same basis as the last increase, then it will most likely apply to the parents of any child born in the two years prior to 1 August 2024. So the immediate action for employers here is to amend your family leave policies to build in this extra leave. As a broader trend in regard to this whole area, parents, including fathers, are unsurprisingly taking this full parents' leave. In addition, we see a much larger number of employers that are now providing for paid paternity leave, and that's probably growing and increasing month on month. So as a result of these two combined factors, it's now quite standard, I think, for new fathers to take two, three, maybe even more months of family leave around the birth of a child. I know thinking back to when my own children were born, my first and second child that were born within seven minutes of each other as they were twins, I took two weeks off at the time and I thought I was some sort of new man like Barack Obama or David Beckham because I was taking so much time off with the family and by prevailing standards at the time it probably was but looking back now and comparing it to the way things have got to it seems quite prehistoric. That said the level of parents leave for fathers in most of the European jurisdictions including Spain, France and other countries where people would expect it to be low is far in excess of what's currently available to fathers under Irish legislation. So this probably will continue to grow. The next change I want to talk about is auto-enrolment in the pension space. I'm talking about this as a new change for 2024, but in reality, this is something the government has been talking about and planning for for at least the last five years. But 2024 has been identified as the year when it is eventually going to happen. And auto-enrolment is the idea that employees will be automatically enrolled into a pension scheme rather than giving them the choice. This comes out of a concern at government level that employees are just not providing sufficient pension funds for their own planning and their own future when they get to retirement age. The idea is that any employee between the age of 23 and 60 earning more than 20,000 a year will be automatically enrolled into their employer's pension scheme 
unless the employee is already a member of a qualifying pension scheme. The cost for employers will be on a matching basis where the employee contributes, the employer will have to contribute between 1.5 and up to 6% of the employee's salary over a phased period. So it'll start off at 1.5 and work its way up over the following 10 years to 6%. There is provision for the state to top this up as well, something along the same lines as the, the SSAIA, if you can remember those days. There is option for employees to opt out, but the whole design here is that employees will be automatically enrolled unless they choose otherwise. So the main impact for employers is the cost that we've just discussed, but also the admin around managing this for employers when these schemes are eventually introduced. As I said at the outset, the plan is for this to be rolled out in 2024. We don't have any detail as yet on the nuts and bolts and how this will actually work. So most people in the pensions world are already saying that even with the best will in the world, it's probably not going to happen in 2024 and it'll be 2025 at earliest because there is still so much yet to be put in place. The last change then I want to talk about is AI in the workplace. And I suppose my observations here are in the context of a trend and also some new regulation in the space. In terms of trends, I would say 2023 was definitely the year in which employers sat up and took note of AI in the workplace. And probably chat GBT was really the point that accelerated that because it became so accessible to employees and employers became quite concerned that employees were using it as a shortcut to avoid having to do their own legwork in the workplace. So we did see a growing number of employers over the course of last year put very clear AI policies in place for the first time around restricting the use of it in the workplace. What we haven't seen yet is any case law around employees being disciplined or even dismissed for using AI when they shouldn't, but I think it's only a matter of time. I think a lot of employers are still trying to work out the lines between how far they are prepared to allow employees use it in the workplace to help them do their job and when an employee might actually go too far and use it as a shortcut. In terms of legislation, we also now have the AI Act at European level. This was agreed just before Christmas. There's a lot of detail to this and it's something that we'll need to look at in much greater detail at a later stage. But in short, it regulates the use of AI in the workplace but it puts probably even more restriction and regulation on the employer in the sense of how far an employer can go in using AI in managing employee data and decisions around employees. For example, how employers use AI in selecting employees and candidates in recruitment. The implementation date here is 2026, so it's a bit down the tracks, but it is something employers will need to start thinking about. And the main idea is that employers will be more transparent and open around the extent to which it is using AI and that it can justify the use of AI and it's able to show it's monitoring and controlling it to an appropriate extent. Overall, I think of all the changes we've talked about, this is probably the one that will have the greatest impact on the modern workplace or rather the workplace of the future and the one that will have the most far-reaching and longer-term impact. So employers definitely do need to start building policies around it. But unlike probably every other HR policy, this is a policy you'll probably need to be thinking about every month because the pace of generation here, the pace of development is so fast. There are new elements coming up here that employers haven't even considered yet. So you need to be ready to react and adapt with that as it grows.
So to conclude for today, as you can see, there's a huge amount going on for this year. Normally when we do these planning sessions, talking about the year ahead, we focus on maybe four at tops five key themes and changes. This year we have nine or 10. I could certainly introduce more if we had the time. So it's not just that there are a lot of themes coming down the track as well, but some of them introduce quite new issues to us as well. So I think it's going to be a busy year for HR directors. Thanks everybody for listening today. We'll be back very soon with our next Employment Law podcast, where we'll cover more case studies and other interesting developments in this space. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N dot done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.